Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. In the podcast this week, Dr. Veronique Mead shares her experience of becoming somewhat disillusioned with how she was practicing medicine early in her career. She found her vocation again later on in life when she discovered that chronic illness has its roots as much in our previous experiences as it does in the pathology that we currently use to define it. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Veronique Mead. Veronique Mead, you're very, very welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be speaking to another family physician. And I want to start there. Tell us how you ended up doing medicine and and why choose family medicine? That's a really good question. I, I originally, as a child, wanted to be a veterinarian. I wanted to work with animals. I found them, I think, easier than humans, but I was allergic. And I spent a few days with a local vet when I was maybe 11 years old, and I couldn't breathe within three days because of my asthma. And so I then read the Cherry Ames book. She's a nurse. There's all these stories. And then it was my dad who encouraged me that if I was interested in healthcare to consider reaching for a position where I might have more options and more choices and more control even. And it's interesting because in my mind, even now, I wonder about how much nurses may have more opportunity for connection, even though I think that's changing or has changed a lot. And when I went into medicine, I I looked at or thought about specialties in other areas, alternative healthcare. And I think it was, I had chronic pain in my upper back as a child. My mother took me to all kinds of different practitioners in the backwoods. You know, it's sort of the doctor would take one brief look, wouldn't even examine it and would say, there's nothing wrong. And so I already had a sense long before going into medicine that there was something missing in the connection with the medical community that I got from these other people who listened and paid attention and tried all kinds of different things, even though none of those worked. And so I think it was just after many years of exploration that I ended up feeling really called to wanting to help, wanting to make a difference. And I ended up finding a medical school, uh, McMaster University in Ontario in Canada, whose mission statement was creating lifelong learners. And the process of learning was reading case stories. And then as a small group, we would ask and create questions about what might be causing this, what might be going on. We'd go home, we'd explore this and read about it in our own space, and then we'd come back and talk about it. And that was actually how I learned medicine. And when it came time for specialty, I think it was the idea of having a long-term relationship with patients, maybe over their lifetime, but also for, for the whole family system, babies, pregnancies, grandparents. I think it was something like that that called to me. Yeah, we resonate. I felt exactly the same way I remember. But then the reality strikes you that the system of healthcare, particularly primary healthcare, 
uh, in the United States in particular, but also now around the world, does not facilitate that connection in quite the way that the idealistic medical student thinks about. Because there isn't time. You're rushing from patient to patient to patient. Continuity of care hardly exists. And in the process, you begin to feel chewed up by the system. Is that what happened to you or, and how long did it last? How did, how long did the honeymoon last? I'm not sure I ever had a honeymoon. My advisor in medical school wondered whether I wanted to be a doctor. And I think it may have been through individual connections with patients that he began to see that this really was what I wanted to do. But the getting chewed up really happened very early on. I had dreams. Oh, I, it's only in the past couple of years, and I left medicine 20 years ago. It's only in the past couple of years that I no longer have those dreams of being in clinic, running behind, having all these patients waiting on me, feeling the stress of that. They've only begun to shift recently. And so what I've learned since leading, leaving medicine has been about the whole world of adversity and how adverse life experiences actually influence not just our psychology, which is still the prevailing thought that it's only emotional health. But what I've learned since leaving medicine and kind of looking for better tools to both empower my patients, but also myself, has been this catching up with research that we don't know about yet, mostly in medicine, which is that our life experiences influence everything. They shape our nervous systems and our capacity to regulate and self-regulate and our immune systems and our guts. And it just goes on and on. And as I've learned about how much more subtle and pervasive trauma actually is, I realized how traumatic medical training and residency training were. Just the fact of what we witness all day long and every day is really vicarious trauma. People suffering, and a lot of which we are actually relatively helpless to fix or change, contrary to our general understanding or thoughts about medicine. And for me, practicing obstetrics was one of those that was traumatizing. I I felt that I was causing harm with the interventions that I sometimes had to use. And even though I had trained in obstetrics, as a family doctor, we're not specialists. We're not midwives. We don't have as much of that background. And so many things can happen in obstetrics. And it's only recently, fairly recently, that I began to think of all this as moral injury, the sense of causing harm because you're in a system that is also unaware of the harm that we cause to others because of our ignorance, really. I want to pivot slightly and look back on those statements because it's very interesting that we are the witness to suffering and we are the witness to potentially to harm being done to people, not by dint of what we do, but by dint of what we don't know necessarily about the person who we're dealing with. But in the mix is the doctor who themselves is being traumatized. It's almost like post-traumatic stress where you're rushing from place to place and you've got 
all kinds of pressures on you, both financial and legal and time and relationships at home and everything else that's going on in your life that puts you in a place where your ability to deliver the goods, your your ability to heal is seriously hampered. Yet we can't turn that over and say, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We do need to do something in order to protect the one thing that makes a difference to patients. And that's the care of somebody who is mindful and engaged in the moment that you are there with them. So what's been your experience of taking that perspective and perhaps finding a solution for us? When I left medicine, I took a year off to think about what might be a next step. And I ended up retraining as a somatic trauma therapist, which is something I didn't even know existed. But I had gone to see a therapist when I was in medicine, and he was a rolfer. So he wasn't a therapist per se, but our sessions were an hour and a half long. And his capacity to connect and listen was so deep. It was the beginning of something really different in my life. And one of the things I've learned in my 20 years since I've developed a chronic illness myself that was disabling, has been disabling. At my worst, I was mostly bedridden for about nine months. I've had chronic fatigue, which is something that cannot be diagnosed. There's no biomarkers for it. It's still thought by many doctors to be thought in our heads. But in my exploration of the research, as I started to discover the concept of trauma in my new training, I got curious. Could trauma that we know is associated with symptoms like PTSD, and we've learned it's associated with things like anxiety and depression and suicidality and addictions, could it be a risk factor for chronic illness also? And that's what I've been delving into for the past 20 years. And what I've discovered very gradually in my own applying this awareness to my own healing journey has been how lack of connection can show up in our family systems, but look really normal. You know, sort of a a family environment where everything's good. You know, your family loves you, your parents love you, but there's not actually a lot of nurturing support. There's not a lot of room for difficult emotions. And what I've gradually learned and come into is how to come into connection with myself because I never actually learned that growing up. And I began to see how much that was what I was craving and wanting to provide as a physician, but that in our training gets beaten out of us because there is no room in our medical system and no awareness of how critical this is. This capacity for human relationship and connection is something I've learned as a psychotherapist working with patients with chronic illness with hour-long and 90-minute-long sessions was just how much, how comforting, empowering, soothing, encouraging, inspiring it can be to have a connection with someone else who sees you and helps inform you about what might be going on so you can take some steps that generally our doctors don't tell us or don't think are even possible that can help. And to your point, we still don't know, let's be honest, what causes sarcoidosis or lupus or Graves' disease or rheumatoid arthritis, never mind chronic 
fatigue syndrome. We don't know. We do not know as of 2021. We still do not know. So there's room for a lot of further exploration, further understanding of what it is that's going on in that situation. But what we do know is that these life events certainly leave a residue in people's lives to the point where they do manifest in ways that can be quite troublesome. And that's where I want to go next. What has been your experience of that in working with the people that you have been uh, dealing with over the years? You know, I've noticed that you had a journal article or a journal recently on obesity. And I've recently taken a look at type 2 diabetes, for example. And I've also looked at autoimmune diseases and the research in the field. Are there, my question has been, are there any studies offering any support or evidence that trauma may be a risk factor for any of these chronic illnesses? And when I think about type 2 diabetes, for example, our predominant view as a culture, as a medical culture, but even like the World Health Organization, is that it's due to lifestyle choices, such as overeating, sedentary lifestyle, and having bigger bodies. But what's really intriguing to me is that there is a whole body of research finding that prenatal stress is a risk factor for these metabolic diseases, whether it's bigger bodies. You know, the term obesity at this point is so shaming and judgmental for people going to see their doctors to be told that they need to eat less, to discover that there may be prenatal risk factors from maternal stress. And this, is, this comes from the developmental origins of health and disease. This is David Barker's work. He's an internist who is looking at the Dutch hunger winter in World War II. And they found that the physical but also emotional stress of starvation when this population was held under siege led to two generations of people with higher risk of metabolic syndrome and all of these related illnesses, including high cholesterol, high blood pressure, heart disease. And the prenatal stress sometimes led to smaller birth weight, lower birth weight. And the lower birth weight is also associated with type 2 diabetes. In fact, we tend to think that five and a half pounds is the cutoff point for low birth weight, but there was a Harvard nurses study done about 20 years ago finding that every decrease in weight from seven pounds or lower increases or is associated with an increased association with type 2 diabetes. And so what I get curious about is what would it be like for patients to know that it may not actually be entirely their fault or even their fault at all, that they may have a body that is has a greater propensity to store fat or a physiology that's oriented in this totally other way so that they may be eating the same thing someone else does, but they actually gain weight and get blood sugars that are out of whack. And so for me, that kind of perspective provides a much bigger context than what we have as doctors and that it can also provide bigger opportunities where it's not necessarily, for example, just about eating. It may be that trauma is driving the eating, which is actually their studies finding that all of these risk factors for type 2 diabetes are actually linked to prenatal stressors, childhood adversity that can lead our systems into more freeze Um, more sense of immobility or hopelessness or helplessness 
depression, and all of those things are linked to type 2 diabetes, but they may not be lifestyle choices in the way we think of them. And so I find that really empowering so that if I were back in medicine, my job would not be to belabor things with patients. It would be, how do I inform them about why it's not their fault and why it's not in their heads? And then this concept you write in your book, The Art of Doctoring, this concept of being a team. How do we look at this together? How do we work with this together? Because food may actually be a resource, conscious or unconscious, or weight, even if it's not related to food, for example. So that's just the beginning of maybe a a bit of an answer to that question that I'm finding as a different way to think about health and how we might start to shift how we think about it and think about even our roles as physicians and our own traumas that influence our ability to interact and communicate and be in this system that can be traumatizing for us too. You're right. It is very liberating for doctors in practice at the moment to understand that. And I'm reminded of this. We've got a paper coming out in which we asked patients with type 2 diabetes whether they'd been given advice about exercise and medication and lifestyle generally. And then we looked back to see what their HbA1c results were like, what their other biomarkers were like for that illness. And guess what? No matter what advice they'd been given, no matter how long they'd been ill, the biomarkers told a very different story. The biomarkers told the story that this person continued on that trajectory that they were on 10, 15, 20 years ago with their diabetes. The doctors would have found this very frustrating. I've told them to lose weight. I've given them the medication to reduce their blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. And I can, you know, I can only do what I can do. This is all very frustrating. I need to give up on this job. The reality is if we were to step back, as you've suggested, and say, this is something that's happening in this person's life. And our job is to walk with them down that road and do what we can, when we can, if we can, in order to improve how they feel about the illness and how they feel about themselves. That would be a game changer, wouldn't it? I think it'd be a game changer for both of us, the doctor and the patient. And when we have this bigger context where we remove the hierarchy and remove the sense that I, as the doctor, am supposed to know things, we can begin to look at solutions because lifestyle changes do make a difference. For example, some physicians are working with people with type 2 And they're focusing not on weight loss, but they're actually reducing carbs. And they're working as a team. They're using these uh, glucose readers now that you can put on your arm and leave for two weeks and get constant readouts. And if they're on a ketogenic diet and they can see changes within two weeks to 30 days in their blood sugar levels, and this can actually reverse or stabilize their type two and begin to then decrease the consequences and the side effects and the long-term changes, or even reverse them, which I've seen in some other work people are doing, there too we begin to change the face of medicine where we're not, again, acting in the hierarchy, but we're saying, look, here's why this may work. Here's what you would have to do. Here's very, very clear 
ways to do it. And I will walk with you in this process. And I will follow this with you. And together we can come up with solutions on how to work through the hurdles that we come through. It's a very different concept of doctoring. It feels so much better. Yeah, I can feel the rush of fresh air coming through the door as you spoke about that in the way that you spoke about it. And of course, the very sad thing is that medicine has gone in the opposite direction to say, all we need to do is cut out large bits of your bowel so that you don't eat this stuff. In the way that we did lobotomies in the past, that was seen as the solution to neurosis of all kinds. Now we've gone back. It's, it's very sad to see this being replayed. person with a hammer thinks that every problem is a nail. We think that surgery is the answer to all, because it's quick, it's easy, it's a fix. You do it and the patient walks out the door and that's them fixed, as it were. It's not the kind of thing that we're talking about here, which is saying we need to work with you so that you understand and we understand what the issue might be and how we can together craft a solution that we're all comfortable with. Because we know what happened to patients with lobotomies years later. It was not good. We don't know what bariatric surgery is going to do to patients years from now. There are so many side effects and potential side effects from interventions that we do, thinking that there are quick solutions and quick fixes. And the public, the layperson craves, of course we crave quick fixes and solutions, but we've been sold the message that those exist. And Certainly, medicine is wondrous with what it can do and the, the lives we can save and the mobility and what we can offer. But I do think we do need to rethink how we're working with health and this concept that people can do something in their lives instead of being told you have lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, there's nothing you can do about it except take these immune suppressing or whatever medications that have potentially very significant side effects. And, you know, the the world of the autoimmune diseases is actually the first place I looked. It was type 1 diabetes. I was looking to see, is there any any evidence there uh, that trauma could be a risk factor? And the discovery of antibodies and the ability to measure these biomarkers has led us to now seeing that they arise 12, 15, 20 years before the onset of an autoimmune disease. And that led the folks in type 1 diabetes, because so much it's it's so much more common in childhood, to begin to think, well, does that mean there are pre and perinatal risk factors? And that led to a whole body of research I've been looking at that just like with type 2 diabetes, prenatal stress and birth weight, this world of autoimmune disease, I've been discovering that maternal physical illness, emotional stress, difficult long labors, even research on cesarean sections. Again, cesareans are an example of something that can be life-saving. But at this point, the the numbers, the frequency of cesarean sections for non-medical indications is very high. And there's research finding that these some of these inflammatory diseases, RA, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac and Type 1, we're actually higher 40 years later after C-sections. 
And they also found the same thing last year in women in a type 2 diabetes study. And so it begins to help me see this this sense that I used to have of moral injury doing pre and perinatal work in obstetrics. I can see much more clearly now how if we can understand these kinds of risk factors more comprehensively as physicians, it provides us these opportunities for prevention and repair that we haven't known exists. And that's been part of my interest has been looking at what are the possibilities if we can expand outside of physical causes for physical diseases and begin to think that life experiences interweave with our physiology and how our whole physiology becomes regulated. This concept of psychobiological regulation from our parents as we grow up because our systems are so immature. And so I've been kind of finding my way into more hope around healthcare and medicine and chronic illness as a result of this understanding that I'd never known about before. And to your point, we know that a woman with Crohn's is more likely to have a cesarean section, even although she can probably deliver safely. We know this. The rates of cesarean section much higher in a woman in Crohn's disease. We know this. So what you're describing is a factory that is built to do certain jobs. It's like putting a car up on the ramp, you fix it, they drive it out to the garage, end of story. You and I agree that that is not the way medicine works. That is not how humans can be fixed in inverted commas. So let's go back to today and say, okay, so if you are a doctor starting out in medicine or practicing medicine today, there is hope that the science that you are describing, the science that is evolving rapidly, will soon show that there are links with events that happened in the past in our life that have led to increased susceptibility to chronic illness of whatever kind, whether it's diabetes or Crohn's or sarcoid or whatever it happens to be. So how do we practice today, given that science hasn't quite caught up? That's the million-dollar question that I'm now posing to you. I would say to start with that I think the science is ahead of us. It's ahead of where we actually are in our knowledge base as physicians and in our medical training. The 20 years of pulling together the research and looking at it for all these different diseases, it's all in these silos where people aren't talking together as far as across different diseases. They aren't talking to each other from the epigenetic effects or the immune system effects. They're not talking to medical doctors in clinical practice. And so the evidence is actually, I find, overwhelming to show that these experiences are not just pre and perinatal, they are multi generational, they have an impact from childhood. This adverse childhood experiences or ACEs is one of the studies or series of studies now that are kind of making headway and helping us see these links. It's a study that was first published in 1998. They talked to, did a survey of 17,000 patients at Kaiser at the University of California in San Diego, UC San Diego. They asked them questions, all kinds of questions. And when they pulled it together, they came up with 10 specific types of trauma before our 18th birthday. 
that are associated with increased risk of eight of the 10 most common causes of death today, whether it's heart disease or strokes or cancer, diabetes, even kidney disease is in there. And so if, in my sense, if this evidence really is this strong, I think it is. This is what I write about on my blog and pulling the science together. My sense is that we could change how we train medical doctors, medical students, healthcare professionals. And my sense would be, my current fantasy, I'm not sure how it would happen. I think it would start with one medical school, one residency program, one hospital that is intrigued and curious and and wanting to do this. And that it would start with day one of medical school and it would go all the way through every rotation, every experience. And it would start with, as medical students, us talking with each other, exploring our own histories to see what our own subtle traumas might be. It could become, then how do we interview one or two patients and explore what their histories might be? Because when you start to dig, it's unbelievable what you discover. Now, I thought my ACE score, these 10 types of trauma, you add each one up that you've experienced from zero to 10. And the higher your score, the higher your risk for various outcomes, not necessarily chronic illness, but that's one potential outcome. And I thought my ACE score was zero. Now, ACEs look at things like losing a parent to divorce or separation. They now talk about losing a parent who dies or who's deported. Those have impacts too. But there's also physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. There's emotional or physical neglect. But there's also, if you grew up with a parent who had problems with alcohol abuse, for example, or witnessing domestic violence, all of these things have an impact. And you think divorce is so common, how could that have an impact? But it doesn't actually make it benign. And so over the years, I realized my score wasn't zero, it was two. My mom had postpartum depression for the first two years of my life. We don't think of that as a mental illness, but that's an ACE. And I grew up in a, in a very supportive family with everything I needed, solidly middle class, but there was really a component of emotional neglect there. So that's my two ACEs. And a study by Dubé found that an ACE score of two is enough to increase your chances of ever being hospitalized with an autoimmune disease by 70%. And so if we're training, if we were training medical students like this, and then it were to continue through residency and it was incorporated into every history, I think it could begin to change the generation of doctors. I think it could help with moral injury that we suffer as medical doctors. I think it would help with burnout and suicide rates on our end. And I think from my experience with working and talking with folks with chronic illness for the past 20 years, I think it would really change lives to feel seen and heard and believed. I think it's, as you wrote in your book, I think it's what patients crave the most, this concept of connection that could come from our own awareness as health professionals. That's a, an amazing vision. And I want to join that medical school now, though I'm well and truly long in the tooth, as it were, when it comes to this job. I think. We are a very long way away from that vision at this point in time. And I think partly it's because we have commercialized medicine and we've made it into a technical 
fix it. There must be a drug somewhere that can fix this particular problem. We're talking particularly about chronic illness, not acute and severe illness where you do need to intervene with heroics, as it were. However, I think that there is scope for us to do more in the way of bringing some of that into practice today. And part of it is accepting patients as they present to us. Patients who present with chronic illness, patients who appear to be on a trajectory to bad outcomes, and not blaming the patient, which is part of the problem we currently have, that they're seen as on the wrong side of the tracks, they're never going to make it, their culture or their color or their whatever is leading them to this disastrous situation. It's costing the rest of us taxpayers lots of money to deal with this. They need educating. That's sadly the narrative that we often hear about medicine, which is making it the enemy of what could be a much better future for all of us. Any thoughts on on that vision, that bleak outlook? I think at some level, what you're saying, and you wrote about this eloquently in your book too, about how there may not be any change financially for investment in our medical system anytime soon. And in a way, that's part of why I have a blog. It's that it's also very difficult to tell people with a chronic illness that trauma may be a risk factor. They have been blamed now for a century and being told that it's in their heads. And so the most common reaction I get if I volunteer this information is that I'm telling someone that it's not real and that it is in their head and that it's psychological and that they need to get over it. And so for those two reasons, both from the medical model, medical care infrastructure, and for patients, I have a blog so people can come to me. People who are asking these questions or looking for solutions, who are wondering about it. And I wonder whether it's like you said, I would I sign me up for that medical school. Me too. I wonder if there are people at this sort of at this frontier. All we need is enough people where we could go back to that idea I was thinking of one medical school or one hospital, because part of what my mission has been is how do I empower people with chronic illness? Because then we can begin to vote with our feet, vote with our wallets. You know, there's, there is a new thing happening where people, hospitals, institutions are evaluating their impact on people. They're, they're looking at patient ratings. And so there too, I wonder, would there be one hospital who would want to say, look, we actually invest in pre and perinatal care in this and this and this and this way, because we know that these actually reduce prematurity and reduce low birth weight and improve outcomes and therefore set us up to reduce risk and prevent risk for chronic conditions later in life. And so maybe I'm an optimist, even though I get discouraged (laughs) at times. But I just wonder whether something like that could begin as a model, even if it's going to take a while, and that could incorporate, you know, you mentioned racism. I think these, I call these adverse institutional experiences, there are so many layers of complexity. But when we begin to understand how they all fit through this common lens about adversity and how it has an impact, we could really begin, I think, to tackle this on many multiple levels all at once. This concept 
that is beginning to take hold of is about trauma-informed care. And that's not just about understanding trauma, but it means that everyone in a clinic or office or institution, everyone from the front desk person to the CEO, to the medical staff, to the janitors, to the everyone on staff would actually be trained and would be working on this in their own relationships with each other. And there's a, an example of a midwife, Jen, Jenny Joseph, the JJ Way. She's based in Florida. And with her practice as a midwife, she is changing outcomes for Black Americans who have low birth weight, premature birth weight, maternal mortality, morbidity, three to four times higher than other than white Americans. And we're already the developed country with the highest rates of maternal morbidity and mortality in the world. And what she is having in her practice that's trauma-informed care, providing support and connection all the way through pregnancy is they're decreasing birth weight, uh, low birth weights. They're normalizing the timing of birth, so reduce premature birth. And this is in a single pregnancy with women considered to be high risk. So I don't think the changes are impossible. I think starting with these islands of change can actually begin to make a big difference. Veronique Mead, you would have made a terrible veterinarian. And the reason I say that is because you're far too interested in people. And that is the marker of a healer. And that is my summary of our conversation. It's been a joy speaking with you. Thank you. It's been a joy getting to meet you. And thanks so much for having me, Moyes. It's great to see you. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.